0: Thank you for downloading our podcast. Luke's goal is to write an orderly account for his friend Theophilus. His aim is to make sure Theophilus is confident about what he has been taught. So what is Luke trying to confirm for Theophilus? What does Luke tell us about Christ's importance in history? Please join us as we seek to answer these questions as we go through Luke's Gospel. The time has come, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, you know, the fullness of time is a language that he used, like the completion of time is a force of that language. And it's in the completion of time or the fullness of time, the intention of God's timing, he sends Christ. And so here we are in Luke's gospel, basically the moment we've been waiting for, the public debut of Jesus Christ. Now the thing that's somewhat significant in the backdrop here is that when we think of the historic context of Rome, what we say is Pax Romana, right? World peace or Roman peace, where there's an arrogance in terms of the Roman mindset of what Rome has accomplished as an empire is true peace on earth. However, what we find in Luke's gospel, and as was recalled for us last time, we're reminded that even the people of God are not those who are fully tuned in to the purpose of God, as John the Baptist calls them to repentance. We find that the earthly leaders are are not those who really conduct themselves with integrity, to say the least. In fact, it's a time where you're rather terrified and scared to disagree with the Roman authorities. Because really bad things may happen to you. So when we hear that it's world peace and Christ enters into, into history at this point. We might wonder what's going on. Because on the one hand it seems as if the Babylonian uh, desire or of Babel. right, Where you have Babel in Genesis 11 fully realized in Babylon. The, the gateway to the gods. That they finally figured out how to harness the gods and build an earthly kingdom that usurps the Lord's kingdom. But yet we have the angels of heaven proclaiming peace on earth. We look at that and say, but it doesn't seem all that peaceful. Christ is the agent of holy war. But yet as Christ goes as the agent of holy war, he doesn't seem all that intimidating or all that well armored to engage And holy war with such a world superpower. So one wonders if the very goal of what Lamech sets up in a Genesis 4 of a tyrannical city, a tyrannical world. And we have Christ walking into the midst of a tyrannical world that's called world peace. We might wonder how is Christ going to win this war? How is Christ truly going to be triumphant when it seems that everything is stacked against him? And that's sort of the the scene and the setting that Luke is setting for us. We need to have this backdrop in mind. That really it seems that God has shown up a day late and a dollar short. And that's how Luke is presenting it to Theophilus and to us. And so how is Christ going to win when it seems all has failed? Well, as we look at this, we'll see halting the holy war, where we're kind of shocked at what happens. We'll see, secondly, there's the advancing of the holy war. And then we have the credibility of God's holy warrior. And so let's begin with the halting of the holy war. Where we pick up, we have this note And we have this note that Luke tells us, and he doesn't shy away from the historic context and reality of this. He really doesn't. And he talks about the reality of what John has done. Remember John, the forerunner to the Messiah, his goal was to be the prophet along the lines of Elijah, the Reformation prophet, proclaiming life, proclaiming judgment, proclaiming war that that the... The Messiah, the day of the Lord, was right around the corner. That's, he's the agent of reformation, the agent of new life, the agent who is presenting the significance of the Messiah bringing the day of the Lord in judgment. And we think about this one who comes to bring the day of the Lord. Well, we've already seen the angelic army in Luke 2 verse 14. And the angelic army reveals themselves to the shepherds in the field. Not to Roman soldiers, but to shepherds in the field. And they proclaim peace on earth. Again, it's that reminder. What's going on? Elijah-like prophet preparing the way for the Messiah. You have the myriad of angels, a heavenly army that could simply attack at a mere command and the whole war is over. But that doesn't happen. We think about what has happened prior to this as well of the shepherds who are the ones who proclaim the significance of this Messiah, people who lack integrity. And we think, what is going on in the Lord's holy war? But we say God has to have a plan. With John the Baptist being so bold, well, we, we find that John is now put in prison. So the very forerunner to the Messiah who's going to proclaim the kingdom is silent. And why is he silent? Because he's really one who just fades away from memory at this point. We, we don't hear of John the Baptist and Luke's gospel again until Luke 7 verse 20. And even there when, when John speaks, it's not John directly speaking. It's his disciples speaking, communicating that John the Baptist, a prophet, before the Messiah, is having a faith crisis. And wondering who is Christ. Claiming to be the Christ? Here I am in prison. You're the one who brings victory? Here I am in prison. Where's the victory? Where's the holy war? When is this going to happen? So in Luke's gospel, this is a question he wants us to wrestle with. What does this look like? What is Christ doing? What, what is the mission of Christ? Because in Luke 7 verse 20, John might wonder, well, maybe my dad inhaled too much incense in the temple. I don't know. Maybe I ate a rotten cricket and I don't really understand everything and something's not coming together. So John is wrestling with the reality of this. But right here in this summary fashion, remember Luke writes an orderly account so Theophilus may believe what has happened. And he tells us John is put in prison. We say, well, why why was John silenced? What, what, What did John do Maybe, maybe John messed up. Maybe John did something that was grossly immoral and there's something justified in this, right? Maybe it's possible. But Luke tells us it's not the case. John actually did exactly what he was supposed to do. Re- remember we talked about the family tree in this context not having a whole lot of, of forks in the tree, that there's a, a lot of uh, family interaction, to put it delicately. And we see that here. Because he's one who reproves Herod for Herodias, his brother's wife. You may say, well, what was the problem here? What was the controversy? Well, the controversy simply is that Herodias is a daughter of Aristobulus. He's a half-brother of Herod and Antipas. And as she is, is related and a part of this family, basically his niece, you have Herod Antipas who persuades Herodias to divorce her husband. He divorces his wife. So now this situation as we piece this together from the annals of history, that in the probability it's John the Baptist rebuking him for this event. He's already married. He doesn't need to uh, basically take a family member to be his wife. And we, we can see that there's some immorality going on here. So John speaks out against this. This isn't something that John is, you know, knocking off stores and being a robber and being a robber on the side of the the road and doing all sorts of grotesque things. He's simply speaking the word of God out in the wilderness, away from the city center, as we know, that's the center of his mission. And he's silent. And so we wonder, how is it that the city of man, Pax Romana, the Roman authorities, can take a messenger... And we don't even hear exactly what he said. So we can't even evaluate if he was rude or abrasive or anything along those lines. We, we don't know. All we know is that he is one who has spoken out about this. He's put in prison. And it seems like it's rather instantaneous. And John is silent, only able to speak through his disciples later on in Luke's gospel. He goes away. And so when, when you look at Luke's writing, and, and you know, Luke is telling us this is a deliberate recounting of history by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this, that this is his intention. John's gone, we move on. And so we move on to the promotion of the holy war because as we ask this question, well, is this holy war done? Did did God fail? Is God really a day late and a dollar short and not really able to triumph over Rome? Well, we find that all of a sudden as John is put in prison, we now have the story of Christ, right? So we have this promotion and advancing of the holy war that's going forward. And the way Luke casts this is a little different than what we can have, say, in Matthew's gospel. So if we just look at this in a superficial way, say, well, there's really nothing that significant here. We have Jesus Christ going out to be baptized, he's baptized, designated as a son, and it's almost like we just move on and we proceed. But this is where we have to appreciate Luke. Luke communicates things in a lot of subtle ways. And there's a lot of details in his baptism that if if we just get dismissive and say, well, Christ is baptized, declared son, we know these things are true. We've got to ask ourselves, and why does Luke record this in such a summary fashion? What is he trying to emphasize for us? It's sort of the intention, I'd argue, the question he wants us to ask. What is Luke emphasizing in this this brief recounting of Christ's baptism? Because if, if we look at this... In the context of the Gospels and John's Gospels, we just begin with Jesus as an adult with, you know, the prologue recounting that Jesus is the word, the confirmation of the promises of God. He tabernacles amongst us. And so John gives us this narrative about the significance of Christ. He doesn't have a baptism. We think of Mark's baptism. It's somewhat similar to Luke in that it's sort of summary. But John is noted... After the baptism so for Mark John and Christ are joined together. That's that's the presentation. There's there's no distancing So it's pretty similar, but Luke is putting Christ after John We have in Matthew's recounting of the baptism where there's an actual interaction between John and Christ and And John doesn't want to baptize Christ because he understands who Christ is and we're invited into that interaction And there's something that's more drawn out in the significance of what Christ is doing. So why is Luke then writing it this way? Why is he talking about John being in prison and then saying, oh, and by the way, Jesus was baptized, which is sort of how it comes across when you read this. Well, what 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 Luke is doing, I'll get there eventually, what Luke is communicating to us is a significance that Jesus and John are not the same. Right? That's, that's what he wants to draw as a distinction, which was made in the beginning. Luke, John's a forerunner. Christ is a Messiah. The people think John is a Messiah. John says, I'm not the Messiah. Luke's making explicit, John is not the Messiah. John has a particular purpose and a unique purpose in history. And that is to announce the coming of the Messiah. So what Luke is telling us with this distancing of John and Jesus is that the purpose of John is done. Now we're moving on to the story of Jesus. So he wants us to have John kind of go into the background and ask the question now, okay, why is Jesus being baptized then? Because we heard the words of John where he said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal." So John knows his place in terms of history and the Lord's purpose. He is not the Messiah. Not worthy to do the lowly slave's task is where John places himself. Well, when we look at this, what is it communicating? Well, first, we know that as Christ is going on here, Christ is the one who is being baptized. The heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends. Now, the Holy Spirit is communicated as a dove. If you remember in our uh, other series, when we've talked about the prophets, and we've even talked in Hosea about how Israel can be like the flighty dove, right? And so, a dove has two significant meanings in the Old Testament, First meaning is Jonah, the, the play on Jonah, where he travels around, he's a little flippant, he keeps going away from the Lord, he's this foolish, fluttering bird, right? That's the communication of a dove. A dove is not an eagle. An eagle is, is proud, it is deliberate, it is a, an animal that can snatch out birds out of midair with, with precision. There is a, a beauty, a, a majesty to the eagle. A dove sort of makes you chuckle right? That's the the difference you find in the Old Testament. Another thing we can see with a dove is it's an animal of peace. It's an animal of humility, right? So the dove is a sacrifice that poor people would give if they can't afford to bring a true sacrifice or a big sacrifice like a, a lamb or a cow or something along those lines. It's a sacrifice for the humble. We also think, I think this is what Luke wants us to recall back to with the way he he crafts his baptism uh, summary, we think of Noah's Ark. And when Noah sends out the dove, it's a sign that there's peace on earth, right? The waters have resided that the Lord is recreating this world when you look at the flood narrative and the creation narrative you see a recreation event with the echoes of the language of Genesis 1 and 2 and the echoes of the waters coming down and the waters receding and so the dove is this bird of peace a bird of reconciliation and so what is communicating here is something significant about the Lord's holy war so when we ask a question, like, wow, it seems that like God has shown up a day late and a dollar short, what is going on? There's a subtlety in what Luke is communicating to Theophilus, saying, Theophilus is a Roman official, you have assumptions about war. And for you, war is much like what we would say today. It's a show of force, isn't it? Right? You, you don't want to put wimpy things up on the front lines, I mean, you want to be intimidating. So like I've said before, with the war horses, and you have the soldiers mounted on the horses, these are majestic beasts. These are animals where the rider's holding the animal back, and they're putting on their poker face, and they're showing that my horses are ready to go to war, right? So it's intimidating, it's scary, it's frightening. And you want the other army to psychologically be crushed when you're lining up. That's the mindset of warfare. You don't have fluttering doves fly out over the other army, do you? That's that's laughable. That's silly. That's what the Lord is doing. He's communicating that Christ is not engaging in conventional holy war. Christ is coming as a humble servant, equipped in the power of the Spirit to secure the true peace between heaven and earth, between God and his people. That's the mission of what's being communicated here. And so Luke is saying, put aside what you understand of conventional warfare, of of frightening intimidation, and understand the mission of Christ. He's not going to Jerusalem to take up arms. He's not going to Jerusalem to engage in holy war. He could have sent his angelic army in Luke 2. That could have already manifested itself. But that's not the holy war. It's Christ being equipped in the spirit to suffer unto glory, to suffer in the city that kills its prophets, as he mentions and goes on to say in Luke's gospel. But we also have this declaration and this baptism that we can't minimize. The declaration of who Christ is. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now, there's a significant reference here that goes back to Genesis 22, where you think of Abraham sacrificing his son, right? And the Lord interrupts that. And you have the angel of the Lord who stands there as one who tells Abram that he's not to engage in this task. What a what a chilling scene when you look at this because the angel of the Lord pre-incarnate Christ standing there before Abram saying, no, Abraham, we do not sacrifice children in this age. This child is not good enough to be sacrificed. And so there's that declaration. Here's the angel of the Lord standing there providing another sacrifice who is here being baptized to be sacrificed by his father. When Abraham receives a call to go up to that dreaded mountain, what does the Lord say to him? Take your son, the son that you love, your only son, right? And so it's sort of this chilling, dragging out telling of the story. But the declaration that's made here is that Christ is the one who's going to fulfill this mission. This is why after we have the genealogy, we move to the temptation of of Christ. Satan wants to challenge this claim. Are you really the good son? Is your father really good? Look at you. Look at how your father treats you. This is a good father, right? That's what Satan's doing to Christ. So this is a declaration that Christ is the one who is laying down his life as a perfect redeemer. But going on then, we say, okay. So we hear this. And we think about these Heaven's opening up in this declaration that's made. And we say the Holy Spirit coming down. What's really the significance of this? This is communicating to us two significant things. The first thing it's communicating to us is the echo back to the flood. Remember I said the dove, bird of peace, where flies back to Noah. We're calling that the heavens opening up. Is almost a direct echo of Genesis 7, verse 11, where the heavens are open, the floodwaters come down, and the Lord delivers his people. So there's this picture of deliverance and judgment that's going on there, the wrath of heaven opening up. We can think also of Ezekiel 1. We think of the opening of the heavens, and we have there, uh, we have these visions of heaven that are poured forth, giving Ezekiel insight into the Lord's intentions, not only warning for Israel, but what's going to happen in the future in the promises of God. But we think of this also where John uses this language in Revelation 19 verse 11 where the heavens are opened up and you have Christ riding out in glory as a triumphant one to on the one hand vindicate and raise up his people and fight their cause and to put down those who are the oppressors of his people. So what do we make of this? Well, what Luke is is communicating to us, on the one hand, we can say, well, it's just a dove. It's a guy being baptized. I don't know what's significant here. But Luke's saying, Theophilus, let's look deeper in the text. What is significant here? And it's for Theophilus, lovers of God, us who ultimately embody this name, to think, wait a minute. This is about Christ being conscious of his mission, fulfilling this mission. So it's a consciousness of Christ moving from suffering to glory. But the heavens opened up is also communicating to us Christ is going to endure the wrath of the Father that we have Abram not being able to inflict. The Father is going to inflict this on his son so we will have life. But it's also communicating to us the ultimate judgment of what John the Baptist has communicated. So this movement of suffering to glory, we do not serve a weak messiah. We serve a Messiah who has suffered. We serve a Messiah who has suffered perfectly to the point of death, endured the wrath of God, so we have life. And he is also a Messiah who comes and brings his people together so that we have life. And so it's communicating that suffering to glory. And the reality that the day of the Lord will be manifested on Christ, enduring the Lord's wrath, and he is the one who will also bring the day of the Lord at the end of time. Heaven and earth converge together in Christ in this moment as he is engaging in holy war against the serpent seed. So we say, okay, well, how do we know this warrior is credible? When we look at this genealogy as it goes on, because again, you look at this, say, what is Luke doing here? You know, you think of Matthew's genealogy. So Matthew and Luke each have a genealogy of Christ. Very briefly, Matthew uh, puts a genealogy together of six sevens, right? So there's a series of uh, 14 generations. He arranges history to remind us that God walked with Israel through the high times, through the low times, and the implication is Jesus is at seventh-seventh. So he's going to bring us into the ultimate age of rest. Matthew recounts women and recounts a lot of the tragic times in Israel's history and how you have women who uh, are not always the most reputable, if we can put it that way, in terms of what we see. There's other times where women have engaged in war where men should have stepped up and they didn't step up. And so you're, you recount these stories in Matthew's gospel. Now in Luke's gospel, one of the things that still puzzles me in his genealogy is that Luke never mentions any of the women. Uh, the names, we don't know all the names. We don't know all these individuals. We can kind of go and we can piece some things together, but we don't know all these names. And, and the reason why I call your attention that there's no women mentioned is because in Luke's gospel, women become very significant. And you've got to understand the context of this. So a a rabbi would encourage a prayer where someone would say, Thank you, Lord, for not making me a slave or a woman. So you have to understand how cutting-edge Luke's gospel is. But right here, he never calls attention to the women. Later on in his gospel, women take center stage. They're the ones who announce the resurrection of Christ. They are dismissed. But we see that women are not dismissed in terms of the plan of God. But here in this genealogy, it always puzzles me as to why Luke doesn't include women. And it's something that I think as we go through the gospel, and I keep going back to and revisit, the greatest theory I can work with is that Luke wants us to understand that his purpose for men is not done. And so men and women are going to be redeemed equally in this Messiah, is what I would argue is what he's putting out or putting forth. Now, in terms of this genealogy, just a couple of names. We have a note that Jesus is 30 years old. So this would be the time where you would have the ideal uh, for a priest or a Levite to begin their ministry, as we find in Numbers 4, verse 47. So this is establishing Jesus' credibility. Faces Satan, goes into the synagogue. It would really make sense as to why they would ask him to read. He's a rabbi of a credible age. He's visiting town. This is normal uh, procedure where you say to a rabbi, here, read a text, expound in the text, and then that rabbi would sit down. So it establishes a credibility of Jesus' ministry uh, that the Lord, as he sets that requirement for the Levites, Jesus is qualified for this ministry. But we also understand how human Jesus is. Because there's, there's a subtle note that you can miss in Luke's gospel. He says in the beginning of this genealogy, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. So he's setting the stage of, again, what does it mean to be Theophilus? What does it mean to be a lover of God? Do you believe Jesus is just a wise carpenter who studied the law, engaged in Torah clubs, and he's just the son of Joseph? Tells us that he's very human. So as they look upon him, there's nothing uh, you would look upon and say, oh, that is the son of God, that's divine. There's a certain glow about him. He's very human. And this understanding is do you see him then as a the son of Joseph and suppose him to be that, or do you see him at the end of the genealogy as a son of God, as the one who fulfills the mission of the Lord? So this genealogy is setting you up. Do you see him as a son of Joseph? Do you see him as son of God? Who do you say the Christ is? This really is a question that sets you up for life or death, doesn't it? Because if you do not affirm Christ as your Savior in true life, you do not have life. But if you affirm him as your Savior and you truly embrace him and walk in him, you have life right here in the genealogy setting that up for us. But we also find that there is a credibility for Christ. In terms of the genealogy, I don't see any particular significant structure. Matthew, you see a clear structure. Luke, it's a a group of names he puts together. But there's still a significance in some of these names. And obviously, we don't have time to go through all of them. But one name that certainly comes to our mind is understanding that he's a son of David. Verse 31, he has to be son of David. So he has to be in the line of Judah, and he has to be the son of David. If he is not the son of David, the plan of God has failed, and God is not able to raise up the Messiah he has promised. This is the thing that he has said to David in 2 Samuel 7, when David wants to build a house, and the Lord says, you don't build the house, I build your house. Here the Lord is reminding us God is the one who fulfills his promises. Once again, we have that wonderful reminder that God's word, his promises do not fall flat. He accomplishes what he sets out to do despite what our eyes see. We also notice that there's another name that I want to call to your attention. There's other names we could call attention to, but just for the sake of time. The son of Seth. Now this name is thrown in here. You think about that declaration where you have the tragedy of Cain and Abel. And it seems, again, that reminder, because this puts us in the context of John the Baptist. always put in prison. He's silent. God can't accomplish his redemption now. He's a day late and a dollar short. Well, isn't that what Adam and Eve thought? The seed of the woman who's supposed to continue the line of the woman, Abel, is one who is silenced by his brother. But yet the Lord says that even his blood cries out to him, that the Lord still hears his testimony. It's the assurance that yes, his life matters, but what is more, God is faithful to his promise again, that he raises up another child and another son who's going to accomplish and fulfill and continue the lineage of the woman. God's promises do not fall flat. And then he ties it directly back to son of Adam, Son of God, if Christ is not the last Adam, we are a people who have no hope. If Christ does not fulfill and take away and overturn the precedent of the first Adam, we have no hope. This is the significance of the Apostle Paul identifying Christ, not as second Adam, but as last Adam, eschatos Adam, the one who brings us into the ultimate glory, confirming the promises of God. So we look at this genealogy, you may say, well, what's the point? Well, the point is, Jesus, truly human, God's fulfilled his promises, God has been faithful, the seed of the woman has been maintained throughout history, despite all hope. Christ is the last Adam, son of God, who has accomplished the mission that God has set out for him to do. And so again, Luke is saying to us, who do you say the Christ is? Son of Joseph, son of Adam, son of God, last Adam, eschatos Adam, who overturns the previous precedent. So we return then to our question. How is God going to win this war when in our human perspective, It seems he has failed before it has even begun. Well, the answer is simple. we got to stop looking at it from a human point of view. This is what he's telling Theophilus. Stop looking at the war from a view of a Roman citizen or an American or whoever, that it's all about a show of force. That's not the, the real fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is not out there. The fundamental problem is not other people. The fundamental problem is there is a problem of sin that leads to death and despair and leads to hopelessness, right? That's the problem of the common curse. What is the hope? The hope is that Christ as a last Adam has to go and overturn that previous precedent of death and he has to suffer unto glory so we can have life. And so with John the Baptist being the one who is silent in prison, God didn't forget about him. He is not forsaken. He has served his mission. Here we look at Christ in his public debut. Christ is serving his mission and engaging in holy war. It's not violent. This is what the disciples themselves have problems with. But it's a suffering unto glory. And it's a reminder that as we walk as sojourners through a dangerous world, that we know that from our point of view, we can also get to a point and say, well, have the forces of Satan, the forces of sin been fully eradicated? From our point of view, we'd say, well, maybe not. But the reality is, as I've said before, God's working in the context, working out his redemptive purpose in the context of a fallen world. And what the Apostle Paul assures us is that as Christ is raised from the dead, there is a precedent in history that overturns a previous precedent of death and hopelessness. There's a precedent of life that cannot be overturned. And when we hear that we're a wilderness people wandering through this age, we're not wandering, meandering aimlessly. But it's as Solomon exhorts us and why I wanted to read through Ecclesiastes. Having our eyes and our focus and anchored in our heavenly identity. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places as the Apostle Paul reminds us. This is beyond our comprehension. We do not fully understand what that means. But the Apostle Paul wants us to start the Christian life with an understanding that our victory is secured in our Lord and Savior. Because he has been raised from the dead. When the Lord comes to Abraham and he starts in the covenant of grace, what is a promise? Abram, I am your shield and defender. Think about how radical that must have sounded. How absurd that must have sounded. And how much more encouraged we ought to be today. When we hear those same words come to us. I am your shield and defender. Because Christ has gone through the pit of hell, through death, endured the dehumanizing cross, and has emerged triumphant in life. Let us not go out then as a defeatist people. Let us not go out as a people who are discouraged, thinking that this that that, that we are those who will never triumph. We are those who have conquered in Christ Jesus. Let us set our minds and our orientation on that hope. Our Lord has triumphed against all hope. And let us walk with the eyes of faith and the confidence of our Redeemer, who has triumphed once for all in his glorious resurrection and ascension. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.